Hello. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Crash, the pop culture and technology show, episode 241, recorded on Tuesday, the 19th of February 2019, at 232314. And yeah, we're back a bit late. But it's happening. It's not a week late. It's only a few days late. And yeah, we are talking about Doctor Who today, specifically. Nothing else, really. Although I thought I'd do a gentle lead-in by telling you what's been happening around here. <laughs> a big lengthy pause while I thought about that. I won't spend too long because we have who to talk about. On Sunday, I made a big effort to tidy up to host a jam session, which sounds really busy and everything, but it was only me and a friend. And by the time Monday came, I was a complete wreck. And it wasn't just the house cleaning, but I haven't jammed for a while and I'd forgotten how useful but tiring it can be. And it also reminded me how out of condition my hands are for fretting and strumming. I thought they were okay and I kind of boasted about how, oh, I don't have any calluses on my hand and they feel absolutely fine for playing stringed instruments and I was completely wrong. Because... If you're jamming, might be for an hour of playing, and you might just be jamming for the sake of enjoyment, or you might be treating it as a small rehearsal. But that's the thing. If you're only practicing a little bit on your own, perhaps for a few minutes, on and off, you might practice for half an hour but again it's not constant but if you have someone else there you need to keep going and if you have to play a few songs the time can quickly add up and your hands will hurt so that's what's been happening I quite enjoyed that also I was expecting my delivery to arrive today it didn't because the UPS courier didn't knock at the door. He just posted one of those slips through the letter flap saying that he had knocked but no one was in, which was a complete lie because I was in. And I had to go and collect it from the UPS collection point, which is in the most stupid place imaginable. If you're listening and you're from the UK... And Coronation Street, the soap opera, still exists. Cast your mind to the opening credits. Hopefully they're still the same. As the camera closes in on those tenement-type housing and back-to-back houses, terraced houses, very narrow streets and alleyways, that's where they've put a UPS collection point in a small shop in one of those very, very dense old urban areas. There is nowhere to park. Technically, the streets are two-way streets, but there are cars parked on both sides, completely 
blocking the entire road. So only one car at a time can even go up and down those roads. And there was, of course, nowhere to park to collect my parcel. So I drove round and round for a bit and then finally parked in a ridiculously precarious position to get my parcel. Oh, what a faff. But I got it, got home, stuffed dinner down, and then kept thinking about those unwrapped parcels. And when I couldn't stand it any longer, I ran to the parcels, cut them open, and plugged everything in, and amazingly everything worked. I did try a Roland Street before, maybe a year ago, and I just couldn't get it working because I didn't have a preamp but I've bought the cheapest preamp in existence, the Behringer V-Tone, and it works. And I'm not going to talk about this much more because I can feel you glazing over. So I'll just move on and say I had a pretty busy weekend, fairly rewarding. Everything seems to have gone okay. Although my sleeping pattern has resumed its nocturnalism and now... I seem to be trapped in my usual rhythm of being very awake at night and very sleepy during the day. In fact, yesterday I had the best sleep that I've had for ages. The moment the sun came out, it just felt, ah, oh, that's the time to sleep. <sighs> and if it wasn't for all those... I'm assuming scientific studies on people's differing rhythms. This would just be put down to <laughs> me being a weirdo. <laughs> but no, apparently I am a night owl, not a lark. Which makes sense, because my mum is too. But, yeah, it does mean that I can do the show late at night, so I'm doing it late at night. Segwaying onto the show itself and... I have just finished watching today the Doctor Who story, The Mind of Evil, from 1971. This stars John Pertwee as the Third Doctor, Katie Manning as the companion Joe Grant, Nicholas Courtney as Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, Richard Franklin as Captain Mike Yates, who I have hitherto been referring to as Captain Watts-his-face, because he just annoys me. John Levine as Sergeant Benton. Roger Delgado as the Master. And Neil McCarthy as George Patrick Barnum. There are other members in the cast this week. But I thought I'd pick him out because his face was so familiar. The moment I saw him, I thought, I know that guy. I've seen him in lots of British stuff from the 70s and maybe the 80s. And you will too if you see this. Just remember that name, Neil McCarthy. He is dead now. But I read a bit about his background, which was surprising, because I always saw him playing the role of some uncouth, lumpen, usually London thug. And apparently he was a very good actor, because in fact he was from Lincolnshire, he was the son of a dentist, so 
upper middle class, I suppose. He was talent spotted by a teacher, ended up doing a bit of theatre in Oxford. Not at Oxford University, but he did go to a really good university. He went to Trinity in Dublin. Amazing. And then seemed to play a series of London thugs. So... (laughs) You just don't know. He had me convinced for years, and until today, I didn't really know anything about this bloke. This was directed by Timothy Combe. The writer was Don Horton. Script editor, Terence Dix, a familiar name in Doctor Who. Produced by Barry Letts. And this was series eight. Six episodes... Broadcast from the 30th of January to the 6th of March 1971. It came after Terror of the Autons, that we've already talked about, and just before The Claws of Axos, which we will talk about at some stage. So let's talk about The Mind of Evil, and let's start off with what happens. The Doctor, on behalf of Unit witnesses a new evil extraction process. (laughs) Yes, it is completely balmy, which is used on involuntary prisoners at a prison called, I think, Stangmore, which seems to be a concatenation of (laughs) Strange Ways and Broadmoor. Whatever it is, it's a high-security fictional prison. And they're trying out this new process for rehabilitating prisoners. It appears to work, but there are some mysterious deaths in the treatment room. And it appears that the thing at the centre of the machine in a strangely Dalek-looking casing. It's, by the way, not actually a Dalek. Probably just that the prop builder had Daleks on their mind at the time. Yes, the thing at the centre of the machine seems to be using the paramount phobia of its victims as a weapon. Hence, later on, the Doctor sees Daleks, Again, the Daleks, yeah, and Cybermen, because those are the two menaces that he fears the most, which would make sense because they are recurring villains in the Hooniverse. Eventually, we learn that the Master is behind this, and when inevitably the Master's plan goes awry, And then the creature at the centre of the machine attacks the Master. The Master sees the Doctor, which would make sense, because the Master is, of course, the Doctor's arch-nemesis. But before that actually happens, we do get to a bit where we find out that the Master is behind everything. And, man, it is a fiendishly complicated plot. This is what the Master's plan is. He brings that 
strange machine into the prison because he needs an excuse to enter the prison in order to recruit the prisoners. Now, if all he had to do was get into the prison, there would have been a million other things that he could have done instead of come up with this ridiculous plan. But such is the way of supervillains. Anyway, the reason he needs those prisoners is that (laughs) he needs to steal an illegal British nerve gas missile and then use it to bomb a peace conference in London and start World War III. It is a crazy, complicated plan with a million things that can go wrong and do go wrong. And that seems to be a feature of the master. He just cannot help himself. He has to make the plans as insanely complicated as possible so that there's a maximum chance that it will go wrong and he'll get caught. What a nutter. During the course of the story, the master uses his trademark mind control, his ridiculous rubber mask disguises, And, as I said before, plots so intricate, they are bound to go wrong. And when that happens, it is up to the Doctor to save the Master from his own machinations. It took me longer than I thought to watch this story, mainly because it was six episodes, and also partly because... The first episode promises great things, and it's colour videotape, and it's nice to look at, and then it's suddenly black and white, because some of the original colour video was wiped. Yet another fine cock-up from the Beeb. And watching old and not particularly good black and white videotape is not the most pleasant experience. What else did I think? There you are, I'm interviewing myself now. Yeah, the whole initial weird plot of sci-fi psychosurgery in the sphere of crime and punishment harks back to the overuse of lobotomization in mental health and perhaps... The current overprescription of ECT. The comparison to lobotomy is particularly apparent in the way in which those who have undergone the treatment appear docile, compliant, and lacking will. And remember, I mentioned Neil McCarthy? Well, he is the person who we see subjected to the treatment, and he is a hulking guy, and it is quite a contrast to see such a hulking brute reduced to a bit of a pussycat, really. Oh, and what else? One of the central characters is female, and Chinese, and a high-ranking army officer and refreshingly not played for laughs. There is a later scene, though, when it all goes to pot, 
when she's transformed into a dragon, which, if that isn't stereotyping, I really don't know what is. Though this was in 1971, and I'm not going to excuse it, but I was watching on Sunday morning Sam Neill's Merlin, and man, Martin Short's impression of a Chinese butler is ferociously racist. And that was almost 30 years later in 1998. Oh, and in the same scene that the Chinese officer is transformed into a dragon, the doctor goes all Jungian and calls the dragon attacks witnessed by several characters a collective hallucination thus sticking a little psychology into a kid's program, which I thought was a nice touch of intellectual ear candy for the grown-ups. Of course, I also appreciate the grown-up eye candy of lovely Leela, but we'll have to wait a while for her appearance. What else? Oh, well, of course, I mean, the main thing is that the Master reappears even though he debuted in the last story, and he's going to be overused a good long while as the Doctor's arch-nemesis. So much so that there are complaints by fans that he appears almost every week. Another thing I noticed about the Master in this episode, which was very funny, at least to me, there's this scene when the master is being chauffeur-driven somewhere, and he is using his bugging device that, until now, he has used to listen into the brigadier's telephone calls, and the device looks like a little transistor radio, and he's actually using it to listen to sinister music on the actual radio. <laughs> Whatever the 1970s equivalent to Classic FM was at the time. <laughs> it's very funny, and it's almost an in-joke, because as he has the little transistor receiver up to his ear, you hear the sinister music, and what you automatically think is that this is just a piece of incidental music but as soon as the master starts off his little bit of dialogue he clicks the switch on the receiver and the music immediately cuts out with a little click so you know it's something he's listening to on the radio and not just part of the background incidental music or part of the atmos very funny I also noticed, and I'm not sure that anyone apart from me doesn't know this, but it looks like the Master's Widow's Peak and his goatee beard, they look a bit theatrical, like the Widow's Peak might be a wig and the goatee beard might be just stuck on with theatrical spirit gum. <laughs> Uh, I think my excuse is, back when I was first watching Doctor Who, I can't remember when I first saw The Master. Did we have a good 
colour TV by that time or not? Because all through the 70s, I think we only had a black and white TV. And, of course, the old TV resolutions and aspects were vastly different to what they are today. So I may not have noticed that his hair and beard were fake. Yeah, enough on the beard. Oh, and there's another funny scene when the Doctor gives Unit Captain Yates, Captain Watts's-Face, a taste of Venusian karate when Yates attempts to manhandle him. And yeah, this time he refers to it as karate, and I thought my mind was playing tricks on me because I'm sure it was called Aikido before. So I looked this up, and apparently John Pertwee used those terms interchangeably. Now, I'm not sure if that was a bit of ad-libbing on his part, or it was just a mistake in the script. But yeah, almost every time he mentions his Venusian martial arts, the Doctor seems to change his explanation. Ah, yeah, more sighing. And we've almost come to the end of that. Sorry about the delay in getting that show out. Like I said, it took a little while to get through this because of the extra episodes. I'm also not sure why they had those extra episodes, but I did notice that there were quite a lot of stunts and I'm guessing they were going for a more action-packed adventure. Some of those stunts, and I've talked about this before, almost certainly would not be allowed today. I don't know how they got away with that. Maybe health and safety didn't exist. But there are lots and lots of tumbles downstairs, motorcycle crashes, and falls from great heights. Those stunt people. Crazy, man. Crazy. And how about that thing at the centre of the machine, the mind of evil itself? Other than the Doctor saying that it's this very dangerous alien thingamadoodle, we are left guessing. It would take a better whoologist than me to tell me where that pops up again. Because you know how it is in the Hooniverse. Things, monsters reappear years later. <laughs> Maybe the mind thing comes back. I don't know. But there is very little reference to it, apart from it being this evil, dangerous thing that the Master has inadvisedly used to power his diabolical machine. The other thing that I noticed in this episode is just how big John Pertwee is. He seems to tower above all the other cast members. And it is quite an achievement to not look overbearing or physically intimidating, because that really isn't part of the Doctor's character. And thinking about it, quite a lot of the Doctors are tall. I think Tom Baker was pretty tall when he played the Doctor as well. Hmm. Can I think of a short Doctor? Sylvester McCoy? I think he's pretty short. Ah, there you are. Okay, and that is it. That is my impression of 
The Mind of Evil from 1971. And we're into the after show bit now. Oh, I'm wearing, at the moment, the shoes of non-procrastination. Because if you remember in a previous podcast recently, I think it was the last one, I was saying that one of the tricks I used to help me work, if I'm working from home, is I put on my shoes. Which just reminds me, a few years ago, not only did I put on my shoes, I used to also put on my hat. (laughs) Yeah, I had a work hat and work shoes. And when I was working in archaeology, I actually had work boots and a more robust hat. And sometimes even a leather jacket. And other clothes too, I might add, not just those things, which would be very strange and would no doubt terrify the UPS courier if he ever turned up. Oh, and what else have I got to add? Oh, do you remember that sea data tip I gave in a previous podcast? Well, I'm now using it to make the show notes even more easily accessible. I have now added a link to the show notes in the description of the episode. It seems to work in quite a few different podcasting apps. I know because I downloaded them to my phone and tested whether the links to the show notes in my podcast work, and they do. It even works in Google Podcasts. If it doesn't, because you're using some particularly obscure app, then the hypertext link can easily be copied and pasted. So I haven't hyperlinked words to the show notes, like hyperlinked the phrase show notes itself. I have actually written them out longhand so you can see the absolute address of the show notes. So now, when you hear me say, see the show notes, you don't have any more excuses. At the moment, the show notes are in plain text, but I might change that to HTML5 later. I don't know. It doesn't really make a huge amount of difference. At the moment, I think only this episode, and maybe the last episode, if I have time, will have a link to the show notes, but eventually... All the previous shows will also have a link in the description to the show notes, so it should be easy for you to get to. If that's too much hassle, have a look at my podcast page, roymartha.com slash podcast.html. And if you go down to some of the subscription options, you'll see one of them is plain old directory listing. And that is another way to get both the show and the show notes without the faff of RSS feeds, podcast clients, any of that stuff. And that is it for now. This show is produced, presented, and edited by me, Roy Martha, a writer. Martha is spelt M-A-T-H-U-R. You can find me at RoyMartha.com and you can contact me by emailing Roy.Martha at gmail.com. If you want to help the show, you can do that by reviewing it in iTunes and recommending it to a friend. 
You are listening to Crash, the Culture and Technology Show, episode 241, recorded on Tuesday, the 19th of February, 2019. And the time at the end of the show is 23.59.32. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now. Bye!